So, uh, so this phrase um, is, is this, just a little bit longer. So, so as I'm preaching up here in um, uh, two hours from now, you'll hear me say the words, just a little bit longer, and then you'll know that I'm about done with my sermon. So I want you all to be prepared for that. Uh, you'll hear just a little bit longer, or um, maybe, uh, maybe you're like me. So I was, I was telling my wife about this before. So as I, as I was a little kid, um, I, I was unathletic. Let's, let's put it that way. I was not a very athletic child. And then, uh, and then as I was telling this story to my wife, she goes, oh, you, you weren't a very athletic person? Like, like as if like, that's not still the reality for me right now. But, oh, yeah. So, uh, so uh, I, I had this uh, PE class. And every once in a while in PE, um, it was fun. You know, we got to do dodgeball and all that stuff, which was great. But then every once in a while in PE, I would, uh, we would have to do this horrible thing that they make elementary students do, which is we would have to run the mile. Uh, and running the mile was absolutely awful. We had to do it four times a year, and I dreaded it. It was the worst experience uh, because I was, a very, I was not a, a very athletic child. And so, um, so I, I would start out, there, there are four laps that you have to run around the track in order to get the mile. So the, the first lap, I would run all the way through. I, I would run it, but then like the second and third lap, I kind of like do this mixture of walking and running because I didn't love running. And so on the last lap, because I knew that there was just a little bit left, like I, I just had to be running a little bit longer, I would, I would kind of give a better effort. I would, I would work a little bit harder. In fact, the last, maybe the last half lap, I would almost sprint the entire thing because I knew there was a reward coming at the end, right? I knew there was something coming, which was, I will not have to run anymore. I will be done with all of my running. Okay, so uh, that's, that's one experience. And then there's also this thing happening in my life right now, uh, which is uh, my wife and I, we are getting ready to have a baby. But let's be honest, I'm not getting ready to do anything. My wife is getting ready to have a baby. So, uh, so in, in labor, there are like these things, these like mind tricks that you have to play with yourself, uh, which is what... So, um, when you, when you are going to the hospital, like you, 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 labor starts at home and, and you actually want to wait before you go to the hospital because you could spend a long, long time in the hospital and you want to avoid spending as much time as you can uh, in the hospital. And so, uh, so w- when you enter into labor though, uh, apparently what happens is that you really want to go to the hospital. Like you're like, oh, it's time to go. We have to go. Uh, and so one of the tricks that you can play is you can say, hey, just wait, just a little bit longer. Can we put it off 10 more minutes? And the crazy thing is, 10 minutes can turn into two hours. And then two hours later, it's like, okay, now it's time to go to the hospital. That's okay. So like, well, we're learning all of these, these things, right? And this phrase, just a little bit longer, it actually has some power for us. Because uh, we keep doing something really, really hard. Um, you know, you can do anything really, really hard for a short period of time if you know it's just a little bit longer that you have to do it. And, and the point is, you do it just a little bit longer, and then there's some sort of payoff, some sort of reward. And apparently, this is God's strategy for the church um, throughout history, whether it is uh, the church today, the church around the world. But, but he uses this strategy of just a little bit longer, to, to convince us, to tell us that, that we need to, we have a season, 
we're going we're, we're gonna to have to work hard, that we're going to have to face some difficult things. Um, but what comes at the end of it is a really, really good reward. We get a good reward at the end of it. So, um, so Acts 1, verse 6 through 8, Jesus, uh, he's talking to his disciples, and, and he says, uh, you need to go and wait in a place for the Holy Spirit to come to you. And uh, so the disciples ask him this question. In verse 6, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So when they say restore the kingdom to Israel, what, they, what they're thinking is they've, they've heard all of these stories of the Messiah and what the Messiah is supposed to do. And when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is actually supposed to set his kingdom up. This is like the time when the Messiah is going to overthrow Caesar and he is going to do away with every corrupt system of this world and he's going to set up his kingdom. This is what they're hoping he's going to do. And so, so the disciples ask, ask him, is this what you're going to do? Is this the time that this is going to happen? And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed. So apparently, God in his mind has fixed certain periods of time throughout history, and he knows the boundaries of those periods of time. He knows exactly how long they will last. But what, he tells, what Jesus tells the disciples is that you're, you're not going to know these times or seasons that the Father has fixed. But but you have a job to do right now. You have a job to do right now. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So the period of this period of time, you, you don't know how long each period of time is going to last, but in this period of time that the Father has fixed right now, your job is to be my witnesses. Now, what are witnesses? Witnesses are people who through their words or actions and in their life, they tell people what they know to be true. So in a court of law, when you have somebody come in and be a witness, uh, that witness is there to simply explain what they know to be true. And in this case, when Jesus is saying, you will be my witnesses, what, uh, what he's saying is that th- there are people who through their words, their actions, and their life, they're, they're going to show people what they know to be true about Jesus, the fact that he is Lord. And then that, that purpose comes with a level of difficulty. Because as Jesus talked about this mission, not in this passage, but as he talked about this, this purpose, this mission that we have in the Gospels, what he explained was, uh, anybody who follows me, anybody who takes my name, anybody who calls other people to follow me, they're going to have to face a level of difficulty, a level of extreme difficulty, kind of unlike anything that anybody else in the world has to face. That the, the difficulty that we have to face will be really challenging. The point, though, is here in verses 9 and 10. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus has now ascended. He has left the earth. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? It's like they're, they're standing up there waiting. They, they, they want their king to set up his kingdom right now. And, 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 and they see him ascend. And then there are these two angels who say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So, the reward. 
Yes, you're in this time where you are witnesses, and being witnesses is going to be a very difficult job, but you get a reward at the end, which is Jesus is going to come back. Your king is going to return. That's where the payoff is. And so it's, a, it's like these angels are saying, hey, just a little bit longer. You'll have to wait, but your king will come back. And, and uh, Peter, in, his, in, in 1 Peter, in his first letter, 4-7, this is what he says, the end of all things is near. Just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So God has allotted the church with a season where we have a mission and a purpose. And what comes along with that mission and purpose is a level of difficulty, a level of difficulty that may be extreme for a lot of people. But the constant reminder is that it's just a little bit longer. It's just a little bit longer, and your king will return. Okay, so that, the purpose of that is to set us up for the context, because Paul, in our, in our passage today, he, is gonna, he endures a lot of suffering, and he talks about a lot about the suffering that he endures. He, he's telling these people about the kinds of things that he has to deal with, um, and, and what's happening is that as people look at the kind of things that Paul has to suffer, so what does he have to suffer? Well, he gets thrown in jail uh, for telling people about Jesus. He, he, he gets beaten. Uh, he, he faces many times where he's like within an inch of his life, right? We hear this story about what Paul faces uh, for the gospel, because it's suffering that he faces for the, for the gospel. And so this is suffering that he's enduring, but he has people who will look at those things and, and they'll say about him, uh, that's not legitimate. Look at the suffering that he's facing. Look at the things that he has to go through. So they look at, at the fact that he is suffering and saying, say the things that he has to say, the, the kind of life that he's calling us to, it's not legitimate because he is facing suffering. So they basically use his suffering as an argument against him. And so it's really, really interesting to me that his first words in this passage, verse 24, are this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. So this is Colossians 1, verse 24, and Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I, I, so there are a lot of things that I could say about suffering, um, and I can guarantee you that, that none of those things would start with the word rejoice. Like that would not be the first thing that, that leaves my mouth as I talk about my sufferings. In fact, my suffering would probably look a lot more like one of the Psalms of Lament, where I would say, oh Lord, this is awful, this thing that has happened to me. How could you let this happen to me? I don't understand why you would let this happen to me, but nevertheless, I acknowledge that you are God and you have all the power and yada, 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 right? Like that's kind of what I would probably say about this. But Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. Now, that's, that's something that's really hard for me to understand, something uh, that's hard for me to relate to, because in order for me to rejoice in something, I have to believe that it's good. In order for me to be joyful about something, I have to believe that it's good. And so if Paul is saying this, that he rejoices in suffering, he apparently believes there is something about his suffering that is good. And so that should lead us all to ask a question, and that question is this, what good is suffering. What good 
is suffering. So, he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So we're actually, uh, we're going to go through a list of things that Paul brings out to tell us what good suffering is. But this first thing is, is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, this is a really hard thing to understand. Uh, like, I think we actually have to ask the question, like, what in the world does Paul mean by this? Because this can be, people have taken this phrase and done a whole lot of crazy things with it throughout the history of the church. And so, so I want to talk about what this could mean. There are some different ideas out there about what, it, what Paul means when he says filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. So the first one is that Paul thinks he, he, he sees himself as sharing some sort of identity in Christ, which he talks about all the time in all of his letters. He talks about how he is in Christ and the church is in Christ. But, but Paul actually sees every piece of suffering that he encounters as on the same level as Christ's suffering. And so, so as Paul suffers, it somehow, um, it, it somehow fills up what Christ has, has suffered, so that Christ didn't suffer all of it, but that Paul in his suffering had to suffer a, a portion of it, as if there's something incomplete in what Christ suffered. Now, uh, Paul has some issues with that. If you read him in what he writes anywhere else, he never once would have thought that Christ's suffering was incomplete. Uh, another one was that um, uh, this, this happens sometimes in, in some Roman Catholic theology, is that uh, Paul suffered, and all Christians must suffer in order to fully achieve their own atonement. So Christ, uh, Christ's uh, atonement was one portion of our atonement, but now all of us must go through some level of suffering in order to finish out our atonement. So through suffering, our atonement is achieved. But, but the problem with that is that Christ's suffering, what, what Jesus did on the cross was somehow insufficient for the salvation of people, that, uh, that we still have to do some level of work to, uh, to achieve our salvation. So, so those two ideas are both incredibly problematic. Paul has problems with them. Uh, the, the other answer, and what I think is, is likely the answer to this, is that um, Paul has in mind the return of Jesus. Uh, and we actually, as we go through this passage, that's going to become more and more clear. He has in mind the fact that Jesus is coming back to be king over everything, that he's going to make all things new. And, uh, and so Paul uses this word afflictions, which is the same word uh, that we read translated in other places as tribulation, that we read translated in other places as um, persecution. So affliction, tribulation, persecution, all of these things is the same word that Jesus used when he talked about the kinds of things that his followers were going to face. The kinds of things that people who uh, proclaimed his name, people who were witnesses, were going to face in the time between when he leaves the earth and when he comes back. And so Paul, when he uses this word, he sees himself as, as taking part in this limited, fixed period of suffering that God has given for his church. But, but at some point, that suffering will be filled up, will be taken care of, that, that all of the suffering the church has to do will be completed, and then Christ will return. So, uh, so the first thing that, that suffering actually accomplishes, 
the first good piece of suffering is that suffering for the gospel, actually, it measurably moves history towards Jesus' return. Suffering for the gospel measurably moves history towards Jesus' Jesus's return. So that if, uh, if God has this, um, imagine God has this, like, different parts of history are like jars. And, and each jar is being filled up with all the things that need to happen in it. So, so that the jar that we're in right now, the age of the church, where we're, we're living on mission, but that mission is really difficult and challenging, that uh, every time a Christian suffers for the sake of the gospel... Uh, it's like uh, God can see uh, another part of that jar being filled up. It's like God can see that being filled up. Now, we can't see it, but what we do know is that every time we suffer for the gospel or every time one of our brothers or sisters suffers for the gospel, it fills up that jar a little bit more so that it measurably moves history towards Jesus' return. So Paul goes on. Says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that, that in my suffering, it's measurably moving history towards Jesus' return. And he says he suffers it for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So, so Paul recognizes his suffering is not meaningless, but, uh, but it actually has a purpose behind it, that there's actually people who are impacted and that he can see how uh, when he is in prison, when he is being beaten, when he is encountering these different levels of affliction that he faces, every time he sees that, he sees clearly how it impacts the church. So the second thing that, that suffering for the gospel is good for is that suffering for the gospel serves the church. It, it serves the church. That, that people who are in the church, things exist in the church, growth exists in the church, uh, because Paul suffered. And if he didn't suffer, then those things may not exist. So suffering for the gospel serves the church. Verse 25, Paul goes on and says, Of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul is saying to these people, what I really want for you to know, more than anything else, what I want for you to know is I want you to know the word. But then, then he has like a really specific thing for what, what he means when he says know the word. He's talking about a mystery, the mystery that has been covered up. So, so this is uh, when he says, I want you to know the word. That it, like the word for a person in the first century would have been the Old Testament, the, the law, the prophets, the, the, the poetry, these different, these different things. And Paul is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to know the word, but I don't just want you to know the laws, and I don't just want you to know exactly what the prophets say, and I, and I don't just want you to, to understand and, 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 and appreciate the poetry, but I want you to see something really specific inside all of it, and that is the mystery that has been covered up, that has been head, hidden for ages, but is now revealed to his saints. So I want to talk about this idea of mystery, because I feel like we really, really love mystery. I really appreciate mystery. So um, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this new like genre um, out, in, you see it on Netflix a lot, they're docu-series, and they're like, um, 
stuff like uh, Making a Murderer and these different, their, uh, their true crime docuseries, true crime documentaries, these kinds of things, where, uh, where they kind of lead you down the story that, that a person has gone through, and the whole time you're trying to like get to the bottom of what actually happened. And each episode kind of leaves you hanging on so that you, want, you can't wait to watch the next one, because you want to understand how is all of this going to come together? How are these pieces going to fit together? And this is, I think this is how in literature, mystery has become an entire genre um, because there's something about us that wants to answer those questions that are left unanswered. There's something about us as human beings that we want to dig down to the bottom of these unanswered questions. And, and the Jewish scriptures, they had a host of unanswered questions. There were a bunch of things in the Jewish scriptures there, that there was a Messiah that was somehow going to come and he was going to suffer um, and, and then he was somehow going to set up a kingdom that would be everlasting, and that through that, that there would also be people who raised from the dead, that life would be given to dry bones, uh, that uh, somehow people, not just in Israel, but people all around the world, the nations, the Gentiles, were somehow going to understand who this Messiah was. Like, there are all of these pieces that, uh, for a Jewish reader, like, you couldn't exactly see how it was all going to come together. They're, they're, they're pieces that kind of seemed separated from each other. And then when Christ shows up, it all kind of converges into one thing so that you understand the answer to the mystery. The mystery gets revealed. In verse 27, it, it tells us about that. It says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So part of this mystery, that, that a religion, which doesn't happen, a religion moves from one specific people group to all people groups. Like in the first century, the fact that, that a religion would spread beyond one specific people group is actually pretty amazing because religions were very localized. They were very localized to specific groups of people in specific geographic regions. And so it was really unusual that a religion would spread beyond a people group. But, but in the Jewish religion, there's this expectation that somehow people who are not Jewish are going to become followers of Yahweh, followers of God. So then he finishes, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery of the word, this thing that has been hidden for ages, that, that we've been waiting to get to the bottom of, that, that God has been waiting to reveal, this is what the mystery is. That the living God, with authority over all of existence, would somehow choose to take up residence inside of people like you and me that he would choose to live inside of us, that by his Holy Spirit, he would somehow uh, live with us, that we could have an intimate relationship with us, that we could explain to him what's going on with us, and that he could minister to our spirit because he lives inside of us. Now, this doesn't work because, because in the Jewish religion, like God was, God was in the temple, like that was where God belonged. But somehow now, because Christ came, that the living God lives inside of not a temple, but temples, people's bodies all around, that, that he takes up residence inside of us so that we can actually have a relationship with him. Like that's the mystery that, that God was waiting to reveal. It's like this secret, this present he's kept wrapped up and he's been waiting for the right time to show it to people so that people could know you can actually 
have a personal relationship with this God. And that, that goes in not just a relationship with God, but then you get an intimate knowledge of the deep things of Scripture so that when you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading these things like Leviticus and when they're talking about these blood sacrifices and these nearly 4,000 new churches are planted every year. And that's just in the U.S. Today, there are 2.3 billion people who call themselves Christians who claim the name of Christ. Now, we can uh, have all of our what ifs and, um, you know, are those people really committed and all that stuff. But I'm just like, let's just take the statistic for what it is. 2.3 billion people who claim the name of Christ. Today, the Bible is translated into 670 different languages and the New Testament itself is translated into 1,521 different languages. People from every language and nation are coming to faith in Christ. People who have never seen Paul's face have been drastically impacted by what he was willing to suffer, what he was willing to endure. And and I I wouldn't be surprised if when Paul said, everybody who has not met me face to face, like he probably had no idea just how many people he was talking about when he said that. But now the whole point of all of this, and Paul's point to his objectors, people who would say of him, well, look at him, he's suffering, he must not be doing the right thing. His point to his objectors is this, suffering and sacrifice, they build this kingdom. Suffering and sacrifice build this kingdom. Now, I can can kind of empathize with Paul's objectors because nothing else in the world works like this. Like, there are very few things, like Caesar had his whole kingdom, and I can tell you, it was, there are very few Caesars of Rome who ever suffered and sacrificed for their people, the people that they were leading. It was very unusual. And so that kingdom did not get built by suffering and sacrifice. If it did, it was the suffering and sacrifice that people like at the bottom of the org chart, who uh, the Caesars sent them into battle to die for him, Right? But that's, that, this is a different kind of system, this kingdom that we are a part of. See, we exist actually on the building blocks of Christians, of other people who are willing to endure suffering for the sake of the church. And these people were not at the bottom of the org chart. These people were at the top, namely Jesus himself. Like Jesus himself, our leader, the one that we follow, gave his life, sacrificed, suffered for us. And then there are witnesses, people who witnessed the resurrection. So Jesus rose from the dead, people who saw him risen from the dead. And then, uh, and then they get held at, at, at the point of a sword. Uh, they get threatened with death uh, because they say, tell us, just say that what you're talking about with this resurrection isn't true. Could you just say that? And they said, if I said that, I would be lying. How could I possibly say that? And so you have these witnesses of the resurrection who wouldn't recant their faith, who actually did see Jesus. They wouldn't wouldn't do that, and they died for it. Then you have guys like Paul, who uh, tradition tells us that he was very likely beheaded in Rome uh, for his faith. We have Peter, who was an apostle, and what happened with him was uh, tradition tells us that he was crucified, but he said, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus, so they crucified him upside down. So that's what happened with Peter. And then you have a guy like John who was exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, and, and he's there. He has now been persecuted for his faith, and that's where he dies. He dies in exile. 
Then you have people like the early church fathers, which if you read about them, these are the guys who, who took the church over after the apostles. And, and um, their whole perspective, the entire time that they were leading the church, was they were like, they were excited. Now this is confounding to me, but they were really excited about the fact that somebody might come and take their lives for their faith. Because all of these people understood something. They understood that the moment that they suffered, the people all around them would see just how true their faith was. They would see just how true their faith was. And and because of that persecution that happened, the church expanded at a massively rapid pace. Like exponential growth within the first few centuries. Can I tell you about some other good that's coming actually today from, from people who are suffering in more recent years? So uh, there's this uh, thing in China called, the, the, it's like the Chinese underground church movement. So what happened was uh, many years ago, um, China said uh, churches can't exist. Like you can't, you can't gather together for church. And, and if a gathering gets too big, the government starts to get really suspicious. And so, um, so they would not allow that to happen. So what happens is people start gathering in their houses. And then if, if a, a house church starts to get a little bit too big, they actually, they have to split it and they have to send people to, to different houses. And so what you have is, uh, over the course of time where the government is trying to keep this movement suppressed, there are these house churches multiplying rapidly throughout China to the point that China today, this year, is the second fastest growing church, that the church in China is the second fastest growing church in any nation. Do you know right now, there, um, so there is incredible persecution happening around the world to Christians at this very moment, that uh, more, pers- more Christians are persecuted today than have been persecuted at any point in history. One of the major perpetrators of this is Islam. So you go, you go to the Middle East, you go to Asia, Africa, Europe, you go to these places where um, Christians are being persecuted, and you want to know something crazy that's happening? Like, people in those countries, Muslims in those countries, are converting to Christianity. Places where Christians are being murdered for their faith have to face incredible suffering. The kingdom is expanding rapidly. Uh, I read a story about this guy who uh, was in Egypt. He's a, he was a Coptic Orthodox priest, which uh, basically he's this priest who he's calling people to faith. Um, and he, he was in Egypt, and they kicked him out of Egypt. Uh, they said, you cannot stay here in Egypt. This guy is alive today. Uh, they kicked him out, and so he had to go to a different, like, remote location. He is now, like, second on the list of Boko Haram's, like, most wanted people. Um, and so this guy, he has a webcast every single week that lasts, like, six hours, where he's just proclaiming the gospel, and people are coming to faith through him. This is incredible. Like people who are willing to endure suffering, God does something amazing through that and brings a whole lot of good out of it. So I can look at all of that and and say that there has to be something legitimate to this thing. There has to be something legitimate about it. And and that's Paul's point to his objectors too. So verse four, he says this. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's saying, actually, as Paul goes through this, um, one of the biggest threats he sees to the church in Colossae are are people who are going to 
suggests alternative teachings, false teachings, different ways of believing and following. And so these false teachers are actually trying to discredit Paul right now. But Paul said all of this in order that no one may delude them with these false teachings. He wants them to be protected. And we're going to get into what those teachings look like. But he just, he wants, I want you to be convinced that these things that I am facing, these things that other people face, they're not they're not illegitimate, but they, they have value to them. They have legitimacy to them. And then he says rejoicing. So he ends the way he begins. And he says, uh, I'm rejoicing. And the reason he rejoices is because he sees their good order. He sees the firmness of their faith in Christ. And so the thing he's rejoicing in isn't really the suffering, but he sees what results from the suffering. And in those results, he can take a whole lot of joy. Okay, so what? All of this suffering, it has a purpose behind it, that God's kingdom would be built. So Paul writes in verse 6 and 7 and says this, he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. His, like his simple point is, don't be swayed by these teachers, but just continue in faithfulness. Continue in faithfulness. So walk in him. So I asked you uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, we talked about faithfulness. And um, it was really clear to us that, that what Paul intended with that is that he wanted us to know God more. And so I asked us to, to pour ourselves into knowing God more. And that'd be, that's a continual pursuit in our lives, that we are constantly pouring ourselves into to knowing God more. Um, but my question beyond that is this, what have you been learning as you pour yourself into knowing God more? What has he been speaking to you? What has he been showing you? Because as you understand that, uh, he is going to make it really clear to you what your next step of faithfulness is what the next step that you have to take is. And so, uh, so my question for you today is, as you pour yourself into knowing God, what is the next clearest step of faithfulness for you to take? Go ahead and take it. So I can tell you that uh, the elders of this church, that we have been praying that God would show us the next clearest step of faithfulness. Uh, the, the next clearest steps of faithfulness, because it's not just one step, but it's multiple steps that we have to take, right? And so, um, so we're asking that, that God would reveal to this body, this church, exactly what it is that he wants us to do, exactly what it looks like for us to be most faithful with the people he's given us, the resources he's given us, the different things that he has provided for us. And so, um, so as we uncover exactly what that step is, I can tell you that our desire is that we would take that step of faithfulness. My encouragement for you is as you uh, go about your work, and maybe, maybe this is you have a person uh, who you work with who um, get, the Lord's been calling you to just befriend. Befriend, hopefully, to, for the sake of sharing the gospel with them, but, but at this point, you just, uh, you just need to be a friend to them. And so maybe that's your next step of faithfulness. Maybe uh, your next step of faithfulness is you've never actually trusted in Jesus. You've never placed your faith in him. And maybe you'd be interested to find out what that is about. There are plenty of people in this room right now who would love to talk to you about that. Um, but, uh, but maybe 
maybe that next step of faithfulness for you is simply uh, praying a prayer and telling the Lord that you want to start a relationship with him, that you want to follow him. I don't know what that next step of faithfulness might be, but as you pour yourself into knowing God, I am confident that he will show you clearly exactly what that next step is. Would you pray with me, please? Father, suffering is not uh, an easy thing to consider. Lord, even as we think about what what suffering might look like for us, and and especially suffering for the gospel, Lord, and I I know that we have, uh, Lord, we have so many blessings in this country to not to not have to experience the extreme persecution that some of our brothers and sisters experience. But Lord, to imagine that, that you might cause us to suffer, it's really hard to see what good could come of it. But Lord, as we look throughout history, we look at the example of Paul, Lord, as we look at you, we see that your suffering, it accomplishes so much good. And Lord, I pray that, that we would not let that suffering be for granted. Lord, that, that, that it would not be for nothing, that it would not be in vain, Lord, but that we would actually take it and we would do something with it. That we would look at the suffering of you and the suffering of the, the people that you sent before us, the apostles and the church fathers and, and our brothers and sisters today, Lord, and we wouldn't let that be in vain, Lord, but that we would be willing to take those steps of faithfulness that you are calling us so clearly towards. So Lord, I pray that you would reveal those things to us if we don't know them. Lord, so that we might follow you more wholeheartedly. And I pray all of this in your name.